If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Wednesday, January the 15th, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Research Fellow. Joining me today in studio here on the Stanford University campus is Victor Davis Hanson. Victor Davis Hanson, VDH to his friends and followers, is the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution with the focus on classics and military history. Victor is the author of hundreds of articles, book reviews, and newspaper editorials on Greek, agrarian, and military history, and essays on contemporary culture. He's a syndicated columnist whose writing also appears in the National Review and American Greatness. Victor Davis Hanson is also a man of the land, a historian who stayed true to his family's farming roots, raising ra- growing raisins in the Central Valley. Victor, Happy New Year, and thank you for coming back on the podcast. Happy New Year to you, Bill. Thanks for having me. There is a lot to talk about in a limited amount of time, but the first question, you told me that you watched a bit of the Democratic debate last night. Did you watch the first 30 minutes on foreign policy? Yes, I did. So here's what struck me as interesting about it. Um, I like to think of this as the Dove Bar, and that's not a reference to the bar of soap or the candy uh, confection, but you saw six dovish people on the stage, and CNN, um, in an overall really shaky performance by his moderators, Victor, didn't ask a couple of fundamental questions. One was which, what would you have done regarding General Soleimani? And then the second one, which to me is a threshold question for anybody running for president, when would you use military force? You watched this debate. Did you get the impression that any of these six people would ever use military force? No, I didn't. I, I think they've ruled out, they believe in a therapeutic view of the universe and that kind intentions are reciprocated with kinder intentions. Right, talk it out. Yeah, and I don't think the Iranians are in that same wavelength. And as far as Suleimani, they have a problem because uh, they know instinctually and, and empirically he's probably in charge of more terrorist than any living person and more anti-American and done more damage to America in some ways than ISIS, etc. So they know you can't say we shouldn't have killed him and they know in, in addition that Barack Obama killed over 600 people with targeted assassinations. And then the other pr- difficulty they have I think is that Trump is not a neocon nation builder. So mm-hmm. Trump, I guess the image that we should imagine is he's trying to get out of the Middle East saloon backing out, shooting both six shooters. In other words, he doesn't think we, when he says we don't want any more endless wars, that's a synonym for Middle East wars. No more Libya bombing, no more Syria intervention, no more Iraq, no more Afghanistan. He just, he looks at it as a businessman. He says the ratings are bad and uh, the optics are bad and there's no profit in it. And I think what he means is This isn't the Middle East of 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. We're self-sufficient in oil and gas. Israel's self-sufficient in oil and gas. The Sunnis are allied with the Israelis against the Iranians. Uh, The Palestinian cause no longer resonates at the same decibel level globally as it used to. And as far as the oil and keeping the sea lanes open, that's something that China should handle. They get 40% of the oil. We do have some commitments to Europe, but if they don't want to frack, they have more natural gas reserves than we do, they don't want to frack it, and then they don't have a navy, so it's problematic that we should carry their their water. I guess the only interest we have there is that um, we don't want a terrorist enclave, Al-Qaeda or ISIS, and we don't want a Saddam or 
uh, Khomeini-like figure taking oil revenues and getting the bomb. Other than that, and that, and that, that can be handled without ground troops. So what I'm getting at, Bill, is that Trump is a, a moving target as far as the traditional Republican interventionist, because for a variety of weird reasons, he doesn't want to intervene unless he has to. Right. And, and that makes it difficult to call him a neoconservative nation-building, you know, colonialist. And yet he did something rather interesting. He goes from resisting a drone strike as a retaliatory measure in the Persian Gulf to now doing about the most extreme response, which is actually yes. targeting a top Iranian official. Yeah, I, I think people didn't realize that when he did not respond to the downing of the drones mm -hmm. and he gave sort of a humanitarian reason why he didn't want to kill people, that that magnanimity was interpreted as weakness on the part of the Iranians. Everybody right. knew he was going to have to reply, and they knew Trump being Trump, he would have to reply disproportionately to reestablish deterrence. It was very ironic because the never-Trump right and the left were mocking him for his restraint. I think it was Max Boot who called him a Twitter tiger. And you knew what was going to happen, that the Iranians would, would misinterpret that and they'd overreach. And then it was it was hard. The Democrats didn't talk about that at all, but it's hard to see any options that are viable for Iran. They have these crushing sanctions, negative 12% GDP growth. They've got a president who will respond disproportionately, tit for tat, without getting into a ground war. And so wh what are they going to do? If they hit a base, that we'll take out a power plant. If they hit another base, we'll take out an airfield. We can do that ad nauseum. And they can't afford to do it. And so I think they know that. My only concern after listening to the Democrats and seeing this is that Trump's uh, maximum pressure on North Korea with sanctions and Iran are very effective and the tariffs have been, and the confrontational point with China has been very effective. And we should all take a deep breath and realize that those trajectories in their view are not sustainable and they have to alter that calculus somehow. China, or China will never get, realize its dream, so we should expect all three of them to do some pretty crazy things. Right. I thought the debate, Victor, was a very interesting window in this regard. Elizabeth Warren has asked about our presence, military presence abroad, and she says words to the effect that all Americans overseas who bear arms should be brought home. And she had to back that off real quick because now you're talking about bringing home people in Germany, for example. And yeah. don't think that's where she wanted to go. Bernie Sanders asked about uh, being commander-in-chief. Uh, talked with great pride about his ability to put together anti-war factions in Congress, which is not military leadership yeah. when you get down to it. Um, Amy Klobuchar talked about sitting down and having a talk about things. Uh, Joe Biden. Joe Biden talked about having a military presence, but it's, you know, a couple thousand troops here, a couple thousand troops there, and then, you know, over, overarching that is just Joe Biden's really problematic record on foreign policy over the last 40 years. You just walk away from that debate really unsure as to what a Democratic president would do in office in 2021 with regard to the use of America's presence overseas. Yeah. Well, you know, Jimmy Carter said kind of the same stuff, mm -hmm. and he tried to implement it. And then we had the hostage thing, and the next thing we had was the Carter Doctrine that said he would use nuclear weapons if the Soviet Union tried to flip a country in the Middle East that was a U.S. ally. And then Bill Clinton tried to talk like that, and he ended up bombing Milosevic without congressional approval. So what they say and what they'll do when they're in office are two different things. I think I do think you're right, though, that there does seem a divide between Biden, who, for all of his uh, reinventing himself, is basically a bipartisan establishmentarian right. from the left. But Sanders and Warren are different, and uh, they're ideologues. And, so I think they could do it. Obama was too. Remember, he said things that were similar when he came into power. And then soon 
he became assassinator in chief with with 600 drone killings and he did search in Afghanistan so it's hard to know what they can do when the media goes into panic if we had a president Sanders and Warren and Iran got emboldened and started killing Americans I don't think the presidency would survive unless they did something right um, thank you for mentioning media narrative because that debate begins last night Victor with Wolf Blitzer saying that last week we were on the brink of war with Iran I don't think World War three was really that was, close to you yeah, no not at all um, and you could see that Iran was almost a deer in the headlights immediately. They thought, if he's willing to kill Soleimani, and we know Soleimani's doing stuff that hurts America, then he's willing to do anything. And therefore, he can do anything, and we better be careful. So they sent those missiles, whether they were intended to miss the target or not, I don't know. But I know that they had killed Americans. Trump would have bombed the mainland of Iran, and, and he would have done some damage. And so I think where they are now is we can't go back to the Iran deal because we got such a gift from Obama. Anything less would be humiliating. And we can't escalate and take out an American uh, base or go attack American embassies because this guy would retaliate. And we can't do nothing because our regime will fall. We'll have loss of face. So we'll just continue this tit for tat and hope that Maybe the Americans will get tired of it, or it'll be reinterpreted as a no-and-fly zone where they get tired, they're sick of Afghanistan. Maybe we can wear them out. I don't think that's going to work. Right, but this narrative of we're at the brink of war, this is a, yeah. just a defining characteristic of the Trump presidency, that at all times we get to this almost hysterical reaction to what he does. He is about to start World War III in the Middle East. He wants to do a trade deal with China. My God, he's going to gut the Midwestern economy with tariffs. He wants to cut taxes. He's going to destroy, <laughs> destroy America's economy in the process. The media at all times just go to just 15 on the scale of 1 to 10 with Donald Trump. Why, how do you account for this? Why, uh, it's called what Trump, you know, Trump obsession, Trump derangement syndrome. How do you account for this, Victor? Well, there's a there's different vira of the multi-Trump malady and uh, never Trump malady. There's the, the never Trump right that are kind of political eunuchs. They don't have any power, but they have a lot of influence, they think. I'm talking about the David from Bill Crystal, George Will, the mm -hmm. Bulwark, the Dispatch, all some people at National Review, and I think a lot of that is personal because they're often orphaning or ostracizing themselves from the very positions they used to hold. So right. we, you had this conversation with me, and we said, move the embassy to tell uh, to Jerusalem, no more Golan Heights discussions, uh, cut off the Palestinians, get out of the Iran deal get tough with China, they would say, that's my hope. And now they're divorcing themselves because Trump's fingerprints are on. And that, I think, is cultural and professional and careerist. They said that he could not be nominated, he could not be elected, and when elected, he would destroy the economy or turn out. And everything was wrong. And they're now alienated from the things that they value, getting on television, being a consultant to the administration. The left... I think a lot of their fury is for it, it arrives for two reasons. One, Trump does not play by the Marcus of Queensbury Republican rules. He's not a McCain. He's not a Romney. So if you say that uh, he put it, it, when they said that Romney put his dog on the top of his car and he was cruel to animals, or that McCain had numerous affairs, they didn't really reply in kind. If you do that to Trump, he will trump you, and he, and he doesn't care. 
Uh, and that's shocking because they thought Republicans are not supposed to do that. They're supposed to act like George H.W. Bush or something. And W. Bush did not reply really when they really destroyed him over Iraq. And then the other thing is they don't know how to handle it because we not only have 3.6 unemployment, but we had real workers' wages in th 3%. We're getting tough with China, and that's a used to be a boilerplate democratic issue. Right. And the, even the border, which they want this identity politics, but Trump is trying to, f whether he's going to be successful or not, but he's trying to outflank them on that, saying, I'm worried about entry-level wages of Americans, and this they're going up because I'm closing the border. And so when they look at him, this nationalist populist agenda is very hard for them because it's been successful, and they don't know. And so a lot of it's frustration. And they, I think the left is saying to the world, we have the universities, we have Hollywood, we have the media, we have the intellectual establishment, we're the CNN, you hear all of that. And the world is saying, but the more we listen to all of that, we don't think that you're as influential as the Trump rally people. And so they misinterpret it, then the world then makes bad decisions. I think the Iranians thought he's being impeached, John Kerry's on TV, uh, Hollywood people hate him, uh, he can't do anything, we'll embarrass him, and the left will love us. They were only right about the left loving them, but not the embarrassment and weakening him, because they don't have any idea that there's this 50% of the country that we never hear of. They're kind of in a shadow. They don't appear in universities or media or television or movies. I want to talk about that 50%. <clears throat> this leads us to the column you wrote for Spectre USA, which ran on January 2nd, the headline, Why Trump Will Win Again in 2020. And let me read to you a passage of what you wrote, Victor. Quote, my reasons for thinking Trump was going to be elected in 2016 were entirely unscientific. I teach for three weeks at Hillsdale College every September during my vacation from the Hoover Institution. Each morning I try to ride a bike 15 to 18 miles out into the Michigan countryside. I've been doing that since 2004. This makes you kind of Punxsutawney Phil, I guess, every September an election year trying to gauge what's going on. But your point here was that you did this in 2012 and you detected very little excitement about Mitt Romney. You did this in 2008. No excitement about John McCain. But you saw something different in 2016. Yeah, I did. I did in 2004 with even W, and I don't think he, as I remember, he didn't carry Michigan. Right. Uh, all the things that sophisticated pollsters tell us not to uh, calibrate, things like the size of rallies mm -hmm. or posters or campaign stickers and stuff. So when you ride out into rural Michigan, you start seeing Trump signs everywhere. And when you stop going to cafes or you talk to people, they're not shy about saying Trump is their person, and they're angry about it. They feel that they had been neglected. And I don't see anything, I, I did the same thing this year, I don't see any change at all. In fact, I think there's more of a confidence that they've been given more publicity, that deplorable is kind of a joke now. It's a, it's a term of, of pride. So I don't think that base has changed, and I don't think that the 70,000 that elected him in Wisconsin or the 10,000 in Michigan or the 40,000 in Pennsylvania are going to shrink. And by, I said that also because by uh, traditional barometers, he did better in the midterms, even though he lost seats in the House, but he did better than Obama than, and Clinton did. He survived Mueller. Horowitz sort of was in his, helped him. I think Durham will help him even more. He's not, I don't see us having a recession that destroys presidencies, and I don't see him getting into a Vietnam or Iraq war. So 
I think he's in a pretty good. I think he's about a one point behind. Uh, there wasn't real clear politics with Clinton, but Clinton's Gallup polls, I think, were about a point ahead of where he is now. Right. Obama was about a half a point or near, and they both they were easily reelected. So, I think he's in pretty good shape. And then, I still think that this unscientific suspicion that the polls are, when I look at a uh, a Reuters poll or a political poll, and I see them down fifteenth. 15 points, and then I see a Harris-Harvard poll or something like that where he's down three. Mm-hmm. I just don't think there can be that, that wide a gap. And I think a lot of people either, it, it, it works on two ends. It's either the person they call up or text, and the guy says, you know, I've been reading about Silicon Valley, and they data mine, and they put your name on a list. If I say I'm going to vote for Trump, who knows what's going to happen? They might out me. And that accounts for three or four percent. And then I think the people who take the polls, in some cases, think, you know, if I can drive down two or three points, it'll help the averages stay low, and he can say he's not successful, and all that works. And I think we saw that in 2016, where the two daily tracking polls that seemed to be pretty honest, uh, the Rasmussen and the USC LA Times, were pretty much on the mark, and everybody else was four to eight, ten to twelve off. And so I think he's in pretty good shape. Being Trump, he's always volatile. He can say any given thing, but that's baked in now to his candidacy. Right. Impeachment either won't hurt him or marginally help him in the polls. So Let's talk about impeachment for a second. Yep. Are, you, are you surprised that it got to this point? No, I said after the election, uh, I wrote and said he'd be impeached uh, because I saw that w- where we were going. Impeachment now is not as outlined in the Federalist 65 or 66 by Hamilton. It's not high crimes and misdemeanors or treason and bribery. It's basically a a new notion that when you lose, when the incumbent party loses his majority in the House, he's going to get impeached. Mm -hmm. And it's a it's a vote of no confidence in the European fashion, and it doesn't mean you. There's no requirement to have bipartisan support, no requirement for 51 percent popular support. No need for a special counsel, no need for a special prosecutor's report, no crimes. I mean, basically, if abuse of power and obstructing Congress is sort of like saying we disagree with you. Right. And uh, no need to even report it to the Senate. You just sort of let it hang out there and add or subtract from the writs as the polls or the political situation changes. So uh, that's where we are now, and it's not what the framers envision, but I don't know if Nancy Pelosi and her crowd thought they were doing it, but if you take a deep breath, they've altered a lot of institutions in over their Trump derangement syndrome. I don't think that the FISA court has any credibility now. Uh, they didn't listen to the nim- They were naive in granting the writs when they were told that it was opposition resort. They, they believed the Steele dossier. That would have to be a, either partisan or naive. Nunes' memo was correct. They warned him. They ignored it. This new Chris adjudicator is a partisan. They have no reputation. The whistleblower, concept of whistleblower, you don't have to come forward. You don't have to have firsthand evidence. You work first, not with the inspector general, but with the opposition impeachment forces. Kind of discredited the, that. Uh, the idea of a shadow government, we never really had that. But Ben Rhodes, John Kerry, John Brennan, James Clapper, Eric Holder, they never ceased uh, their political opposition. They didn't go back into private practice or private spheres. They're just out there in a way that I don't think George W. Bush ever did or Reagan ever did or 
even Bill Clinton did. So they've said that Trump is so unpalatable that any means necessary justify the radical goal of, of getting rid of him. And they've really warped these in, these institutions and impeachments, of course, the most prominent. Right, but also, Victor, the uh, congressional Democrats, the House Democrats, it's a coastal operation. Yeah. It's a coastal California, Atlantic coastal operation. It's not inland. One Democrat did break on the uh, vote today on Florida. The Argos was a Democrat who represents a rather rural Minnesota district. Why did he do it? Trump carried that district by about 30 points, and yeah. so he is a dead man walking if he if he votes with the Democrats I think that's on a that. Good point. But even so I live in the David Valadeo district. It's plus eight Democrat. Right. He won. Uh, He's targeted every two years. Yeah. He he won the uh, the primary by I think twelve points mm -hmm. over T J Cox, and then on election day he won by six thousand votes. And right. then we had this massive vote harvesting. You could everybody knew it was going on, right. where people were going door to door and saying, you know, you filed for disability, you didn't fill in your your form, and then they were waiting where they filled it in, and, and he ended up losing by 600 votes. And he's, if you look at that race now, he's, Valadeo's running again against mm -hmm. the incumbent of two years, the right. Democrat. Democrats voting for impeachment. Right. Said he wouldn't. And I think if you look at the internal polls that Valadeo people have, he's way ahead. So I don't think it's going to be limited necessarily to just the obvious uh, Trump districts, it's going to be close districts, too, where people are sick of this. And I, I think that the Republicans have a 50-50 chance of taking back the House. Well, every freshman House Democrat voted for impeachment, and I think that's probably a reflection of one thing. You're not going to cross the speaker yeah. as a freshman. You have yeah. to do what she dictates. Yeah. Very simple. Uh, so let's talk about Trump in 2020 right now. And here's what I'm curious about. You see the countryside voters in Michigan. You talked in that article about in autumn of 2016, you talked to Hispanic voters and your stretch of the Central Valley in California. These people relate to Donald Trump. There are things they like about Donald Trump. What I'm curious about, especially the Michigan ones, Victor, what do they think they have in common with Donald Trump? Because, and this is what fascinates yeah. me, Donald Trump has led a lifestyle wholly incompatible with theirs, unless I'm missing something, and they're millionaires, and they develop, and they live in Manhattan yeah, penthouses, and they're married to I European I think they are models. missing something. I'll give you an example. I don't like the anecdotes to be in, in place of exegesis, but mm -hmm. so I had to go get a little award at my high school that I graduated from some 50 years ago, and it's 99% Hispanic, the crowd was, football game. I went mm -hmm. out. I didn't think it would be a reception. I've got a, a wonderful reception. People came up afterwards. One of them, I, won't, I don't want to embarrass him, but he's got a very high, prominent position in the highway patrol. Maybe s a lot of officers under him. And he gave me what I would call the classic reasons why he's for Trump. He's naturally conservative, but of course he he swims in a, a lake of liberals, state employees, and he's worried about the border and he doesn't like Trump's thing, but it, was, it wasn't what I thought, it was cultural. It was, I don't like, I guess, if I would translate all the things he said, and there were a number of people with him, Hispanics, who said the same thing, they don't like what I would call the nasal tone, elite, whiny, white, condescending you think this way be not just because it is condescending but because the people that they deal with every day that are not Hispanic the farmer the tractor driver the plumber are not like that and they get along with them mm. so they're they say those people 
don't represent us. They have a different cultural view. They have different taste, whether it's going to fast food or having a nice big pickup, all the things that they do, and they're being lectured now. You know, you can't drink that Coke. You can't have that supersized hamburger. You can't buy gasoline. We're going to give you this green thing. And whether or not they support it in the abstract, in the concrete, it comes across as a, I don't know how one person said it, I should, I'll be careful how I say it, but he said, I don't like a stupid little wimpy guy telling me what to do. And right. all these people are blank, blank wimps. And when they see Trump, El Jefe, he, they see a guy who, where a lot of their leadership seem as crude and racist and say all that stuff. They see a guy who, I don't want to say he's a cadillo, but he's, he makes decisions. And he talks with that Queen's accent. And he doesn't pander. And when he meets different identity politics, he has the same mannerisms, the same voice. It would be inconceivable for them to say that he'd adopt a black fake accent like, like even Obama and Hillary, of course, or that he would be like Julian Castro who doesn't speak a word of Spanish and Trill is ours. And they see him as genuine and uh, fair mm -hmm. in a sense. And then, you know, like one guy said to me, I think I quoted that a couple times, that he was on a roof getting $17 an hour, and a guy came by and yelled at him, I'll pay you 22 if you jump off and get on my truck and go to a housing development. So there's a shortage of labor, and the message is getting through that publicly we all want open borders. Privately, the fewer illegal aliens from southern Mexico that we have, the less problems we have in our local schools, the less gangs we have, and the more opportunity we have in higher wages. And mm -hmm. they won't say that publicly, right. but I'm not sure they won't vote that way privately. Right. But I, I'm fascinated by the change in Trump himself, and that Trump's career before politics is built on what, Victor? Yeah. It's built on, first of all, showing off this incredibly shiny lifestyle. Yeah. And look at the women on my arm, and look at how much money I have. He then does The Apprentice, which is a combination of both his wealth, but also his personality. Now you're fired. But then, Victor, in 2015, the summer of 2015, he comes down that elevator at Trump Tower, and now he's very different, Donald Trump, and now he's talking about concerns that the average man has. He's talking about frustration over border control. And he's talking about frustration over yeah. trade. He's talking about frustration about political correctness. In other words, he just kind of flipped on a switch and suddenly he got it. No, you're absolutely right. And he, he's very, because he's a reality television pro, he's very adept at it. So when he talks about endless wars, it's always, they're going to send your kid over there to die, but they're never going to go over there. Or when he talks about China, he said they're going to go over and outsource and offshore and make a bunch of money, but they don't care that your job is the price of that. And yeah, he's putting it in personal terms of the middle class. And what he's trying to do, it's really, I don't think observers have point. He's saying to the Democrats, you're dividing us by race and I'm gonna divide us by class. So I'm gonna get people who are black and brown and white and any, everything, and we're gonna say we want a fair deal, but the people that we want a fair deal from are the Michael Bloombergs and the Tom Steyers and those guys, right. and they're liberal elites that look down on us. And I don't know if he's gonna be successful, but I do think he's gonna be more successful than Romney or McCain. And you know better than I do, Bill, that in this very fragile electoral uh, process of the Electoral College, it doesn't take m many peeling off of people in Pittsburgh or Philadelphia. If uh, Hillary or if Hillary did not get the turnout that Obama got, 
and that meant that Trump only had to get a little bit of the rural Michigan, rural Wisconsin to balance places like Milwaukee and Madison and then in Michigan, Detroit and Grand Rapids and then Pennsylvania and it worked both ways. So if he can peel, Trump can peel off the traditional, you know, get 15% of the black vote and 38% of the Latino vote and get the same turnout of his base and he's won. And I think that's why they call him a racist so much, the Democrats, because they're terrified of that. Well, that does shake things up. But, you know, one thing Trump has going for him in this election, Victor, is he remains authentic. Now, his critics will say at times he's an authentic jerk, and this gets into, into tweeting and saying things he doesn't need to, such as the reference to the 52 cultural sites in Iran. Not a, not a smart thing for him to do in retrospect. But he remains true to the brand. And you mentioned McCain and Romney. I, these were just fundamental problems with their candidacies. Mitt Romney, by the time he ran in 2012, was about a third or fourth generation version of the original Mitt Romney, who challenged Ted Kennedy back in the yeah. mid-1990s. The Mitt Romney is a Senate candidate who criticized Ronald Reagan. Yep. Now, Mitt Romney was a you know, flaming conservative. John McCain, when he ran in 2008, was a lot of distance from the straight talk guy in 2000 who took on you know, cultural you know, conservative Christians, for example. Yeah. So I think that voters looked at that and maybe they didn't care for the evolution. But Trump is not evolving. Trump is staying true to himself now. Yep. That's not always good. But I think in this day and age, authenticity goes a long way. I, I think you're right. And I think it's been very... We remember those early stories when Bannon was still there that they had the chalkboard or the, and they promises kept and they kept writing them right. down. And so Trump is saying, you know, Trump would be dead today, Bill, if he had reneged on the Keystone Pipeline or he didn't open Anwar up or he didn't rail about the wall and try to divert funds or go to court or uh, he didn't get... He had sent 20,000 troops into Syria to adjudicate the Turks and the Syrian and the Kurds. But he's kept his promises, and he said he was going to change the economy and help working people. And for the first time in 10 years, real workers' wages have gone up on an average the first three years of almost 3% per annum. So he kept his promises, and people, they're kind of, and where he didn't keep it, where he, where you and I and most of the Hoover fellows would be worried about Trump, that is, he hasn't taken on the debt, and he hasn't taken on entitlements. He didn't really promise that he was going to do that. Right. I think he should have promised, and he should do it, but he never really did. Right, but he also hasn't done anything terribly swampy so far. Yeah. This is where I think he might be very lucky, Victor. Uh, if I were a Democrat trying to figure out how to take down Donald Trump, I would go after this issue of authenticity yeah. and what brought Trump to office, which is running against Washington and running against the establishment, and i try to make him look more establishment. And what could be more establishedarian than, say, Trump signing on to a big, ridiculously overpriced infrastructure bill, for example, yeah. where 535 members each get a piece of pork out of Congress yeah. and Trump signs it and it's just bad policy all around. Yeah. But it looks like in this Congress, Nancy Pelosi now comes to a fork in the road after impeachment. Well, one thing that saves him from that vulnerability that you described accurately is that even though people don't know the details, they do have a rough sense that he doesn't call AEI up for advice. Right. He doesn't call us up at Hoover for advice. He doesn't have a quote-unquote wise man kitchen cabinet of former Secretary of State's that come in and tell him what he has to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, he doesn't have a lot of uh, the conservative guy at the New York Times, a conservative one at the Washington Post. They don't come in and talk to him, and he, he doesn't right. do that. But he did look for advice in what area, though? Judges. What's that? Judges. He, yes. he looked at think tanks for advice on judges. Yeah, he did yeah. do that. Basically, Leonard Leo did right. that in the Federal Society. 
But what I'm getting at is they think, you know what, there's all these stories of the crazy people he's hired, the Mooch and Omarosso and Ban and all that. But part of that is confirmation that he is not tied in and doesn't have access to right. the Romney talent pool of bipartisan, somewhat conservative people. Right. So when they say I wouldn't serve, I remember Elliot Cohen, the dean of the of the SICE, uh, wrote an op-ed said I was willing to offer my services to Trump, but these people just you can't work with them. Right. That he didn't realize that that helped Trump, and uh, so that, that that I think he's been able to to wedge that, and the way he gets it, the infrastructure he's trying to say these are going to give jobs to people and working people and all mm -hmm. that. Right. But again, I think this is where he might be fortunate, Victor, because once impeachment runs its course in the next one, two, four, five weeks, however many, boy, if you're running for president right now and you have to sit in that trial, how frustrated must you be? Yeah. And I don't think Nancy Pelosi realized the timing that once you impeach him and then you acquit him, right. are you going to impeach him again? And he, it, it's, I'm not saying that he's going to take advantage of that, but it's going to be very hard to say that he committed, you know, in June or August of this year, he committed an impeachable offense, and the people are going to say, wait a minute, you had your Mueller thing, Russian, and then you went out and you said they still colluded, Mueller found nothing. Then you had the Horowitz that had all of this unethical behavior. Then you had impeachment. And, you know, fine, at some point, let the voters decide. So I, I think it's going to boomerang. I don't think it's going to boomerang on them as much as the Republicans think it will, because the polls are still 50-50. But... I think in the long run, it, it sort of says that Trump, in the crucial months of August to November, will not have impeachment on, over his head. And more importantly, he may have Durham giving some indictments. And what do you do after you've shot that that round of impeachment? There's no, they say second, third, you can't impeach a president in a serial fashion. No, it's a, it's an uno card, if you no. will. You can play yeah. the uno card and try to change the yeah. suit, and after you've done yeah. it, you failed. But again, he might be lucky because Pelosi has to make a decision after this, and do I, am I going to work with him and do something? Am I going to stiff him? Or maybe something in between where you saw, for example, the USMCA deal materializes to help some of our Democrats back home. But otherwise, they're not going to do much, and I think that probably just plays right into his hand no, for I 2020. Think it helps him. I think it helps him, especially if he were to win the House. Let me read um, uh, another passage from your column, Victor, and this one it's going to take a minute, so have a drink of water if you'd like. Uh, you wrote, quote, It is easy to say that 2020 seems to be replaying 2016, complete with the identical insularity of progressives, as if what should never have happened then certainly cannot now. But this time around, there is an even greater sense of anger and need for retribution, especially among the unlike most unlikely Trump supporters. It reflects a fed-up paycheck for three years of nonstop efforts to overthrow an elected president, anger at anti-Trump hysteria and weariness at being lectured. You continue. A year is a proverbial long time. The economy could tank. The president might find himself trading missiles with Iran. At 73, a sleep-deprived hamburger munching Trump might discover his legendary stamina finally giving out. Still, there is a growing wrath in the country, either ignored, suppressed, or undetected by the partisan media. It is a desire for a reckoning with, quote, them. For lots of quiet, ordinary people, 2020 is shaping up as a get-even election in ways that transcend even Trump himself. Yeah. What, what ways? Well... When Robert De Niro gets on TV and says he likes to plummet Trump's face for the nth time, or when you have some athlete who wants to take the knee, or when you have Rachel Maddow screaming to those three million voters, or you have the nine million people who watch the network news and they see that prejudice that's baked into the, right. the news commentary, they have no idea how that affects anywhere from 45 to 55 percent of the American people. And I think what 
they've lost the, the Trump base, the 45%, but that 10%, they're, they just want to live and let live. And so they get this, you've got to think this way, you've got to be this way, you've got to do this. And people, I think, are getting tired of it. And there's going to be, I think, a high number of independents that won't tell anybody they're going to vote for Trump, but they want to send a message to people. And they're going to say, you know what, if he's your worst nightmare, you deserve him. And I, I think that's going to happen. It happened to an extent in 2016. And again, I know his handlers and his advisors are saying we've got to pick up three to five percent of the independent women voters, and you've got to tone down some of that stuff. And then we've got to pick up four or five percent of the blacks, and we've got to pick up four, uh, ten or fifteen percent. But the way you pick up that stuff is that you cultivate an anger at those elites, and because a lot of people are just sick of it, and. I don't know if I said this, but I spoke to a large group of uh, executives in agribusiness and oil and uh, in Southern California, in San Joaquin Valley, not too long ago. And about 100 of them, I asked them how many voted for Trump, 75%, 25%. Then I asked the key question, how many are going to vote for Trump again, yeah. all but two? And I said, uh, of those that voted for Trump, are anybody not going to vote for him, not one? Then I asked the people, the 23 people, let's say, I, I don't know the exact numbers, who have switched, and they said just what you did. He kept his promises. I don't really care. I don't like him. I hope that the next president doesn't comport himself his way, but in terms of oil and the economy and jobs and defense, I'm all for it. I'm going to vote for him. And I, I, I just don't see peop a large number of people saying, Gosh, I heard what Bill Crystal wrote the other day. He's right. Or I read National Review, and they, these guys were absolutely right about Trump, and I'm switching my vote. It's much more likely that people who stayed home or didn't vote for him are going to vote for him than he gets defections, at least at this point early on in the campaign. Now, I don't know about you, Victor, but I'm already looking forward to 2024 in this regard. If Trump is reelected, then... A new Republican comes along in 2024. If Trump is reelected, the Democrats have to go back to the drawing board and try out somebody new for 2024. You could take a step back and saying, well, 2024 is kind of baked in this regard. We have through this stretch of eight-year presidents, this remarkable stretch, three in a row. Trump may be the fourth, but only once in American history have we had three consecutive um, eight-year presidents. That's the era of good feelings, the beginning of the 19th century. Otherwise, there's a lot of volatility for presidents, but not now. So if Trump does play out with that regard, you have an election in 2024, Victor, where Democrats have to decide who are we? What are we? And that's going to be very interesting to see how they would process a defeat. Was it just Trump? You know, will they go back to just we were cheated? Regs like a bunch of Los Angeles Dodgers fans right now mm -hmm. by saying that. Um, will they take a look at themselves and decide, as Bill Clinton did in 1992, we've got to clean up our act and do something different? But meanwhile, Victor, the Republicans and this question about Donald Trump. Is Donald Trump a one-off? Can anybody else be Donald Trump? Is there anybody else in that Donald Trump laying at the swim meet of Republicans in 2024? Well, I just look at the people that I have a gut instinct are going to run, mm -hmm. and there's about five of them. And they're Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz and Nikki Haley and I think Mike Pompeo. Okay. And all of them have, even Marco Rubio, if you've heard some of the things he's talking about, it's 
let's say, workers' populist economic agenda. And he's dropped. I just don't see that he's going to have a bunch of neocon advisors telling him to go into Iran and rebuild it. it they have the most of the central issues of Trumpism they have embraced. And they've embraced it because they have been taught that with the Electoral College as it is, and you start losing New York and losing Illinois and losing Massachusetts and losing California, that whether you're like, and you're in danger of losing Arizona, maybe you might go the way of New Mexico. I, I think Texas won't, but you've got to win these states that Trump won. And you right. cannot win those states, those 10 or 12 states, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Ohio, Indiana, Pennsylvania, Michigan, unless you appeal to, uh, to, you can't just say I want capital gains tax and I want free trade at all cost and deficits don't matter and, you know, we're going to cut entitlements and all that. It's just not going to work for them. They don't, there's not right. that constituents anymore. This is something important, I think, Victor, that goes overlooked. Uh, if you put any other Republican up in 2016 other than Trump, let's say Rubio in particular, yeah. Rubio runs a different path to get to 270. If you go back and do the math, a Republican could get to about 258 pretty yeah. easily. And that's just winning Iowa and getting back North Carolina, doing doing things that would happen yeah. on the natural. But the question is how to get that extra 12 to get yeah. you to 270. I would wager that Rubio's path, they would have said, we're going to go through Virginia. Yeah. We're going to go through Nevada. Nevada is becoming an increasingly difficult state for Republicans because of Clark County, people moving into Nevada and just changing sensibilities with that state. Virginia is becoming more blue. They're having a big fight over guns right now, but really yeah. Northern Virginia and transplants of Virginia are changing that nature. The point is, Victor, Marco Rubio would have fallen short because he would have lost the upper Midwest. Yep. He probably I, would not have campaigned much up there, and I don't think he could have connected. So I think this is one of the big tr things that and Trump he, has and changed. you're saying that he, you agree that he realizes that? I think now he realizes yes, that. Now I think that's the point you're saying. So I think this is the transition for Republicans yeah. is being yeah. overlooked. Republicans now have to look yeah. to the to the yeah. you know, industrial Midwest to figure out how to yeah. communicate. I, I think you're absolutely right. And that entails because wages have been so depressed and there was such people you can't go in and say that, you know, we're going to you can say you're gonna means test social security, but you can't say I'm going to change the rules of social security and make you things that I would support, don't get it till you're 68, for example. That's not going to sell. You're gonna, you can say you're means testing or you're going to tax people that are in higher incomes, but you have to have some populist notion that these people lost out in the last 40 years during globalization that enriched the coast. And I think they all know that now. Um, and so when you talk about taking out Suleimani or you, you talk about bringing... Uh, a Randy heel. It has to be couched in nationalist Jacksonian terms, like "Don't tread on me, SLB." Right. But whether I think Trump's attitude is, if you guys want to have a king, if you want to have a dictator, if you want to have a philosopher, we don't care anymore because it's we don't like you and you don't like us, and it's a bad investment for us and it's bad optics. But the only rule we are: don't get a nuke and threaten us and don't kill Americans. Because if you do, we're going to respond disproportionately in a way that favors us. And I think the message is we're not going to get in the streets of Basra or Baghdad anymore and fight your wars uh, with dead dogs disguised as IEDs and 16-year-olds. You can't distinguish between a 16-year-old and a suicide bomber. We're going to do it our way, and that's smart weapons and drones and big bombs. And that message really appeals to the Midwest. One way I look at it is uh, Trump, in effect, is telling America that we have to be more like Israel. Yeah. 
we have to look at our borders and protect point. our borders. Um, the idea of taking out Soleimani, Israel was going to do that in 2015. Yeah. The Obama administration tipped off Iran. They didn't do it, but that is a complete Israeli kind of operation to take out someone I like that. I think that's a really good point. Bill. And, and if, we, if we get to a nuclear situation in Iran, it probably will involve an airstrike taking out yeah. the facility. So again, this is thinking about survival in the Israeli way. Yeah, I, and I would add to that metaphor that the Israelis' uh, unabashed desire to develop gas and oil to be self-sufficient to export it to Europe—that's right. already working. Europeans have sort of, and then the wall has stopped the suicide bombing, and this realist idea that Israel's saying that we don't really care if they hate Jews or not, but the Saudis or the Kuwaitis or the Egyptians want to ally with us against the Iranians—fine. And so I, I think Netanyahu's Israel is something that. Trump feels an affinity because he sees it works. And if you were dispassionate and you looked at the position of Israel 15 years ago, it was, please, please, the only way you can be safe, we were telling them, is you've got to cut a deal with the Palestinians. And now Trump is saying, we cut the money to the Palestinians. Nobody cares. Refugees after a certain shelf life, they're not refugees. And you know what? The Saudis and the Kuwaitis like you. That's good enough for us. You both just like dislike Iran. We don't have to worry about protecting you because you're not going to have gas and oil. You've done that yourself. And your military in comparative terms is far stronger than it's ever been. And you have nuclear deterrence. So we don't really don't have to be in the Middle East and hold your hand anymore yeah. at the UN. I look at politics at this point in 2020, Victor, in the new year, and I think it evolves at the moment. And I emphasize the moment because things will change very soon around three eyes. One is Iran. One is impeachment. And the third one is incumbency. And I mean incumbency in terms of both the president's ability to use his office to project what he wants to project, but also whether the Democrats can use the House to project what they want to project. So those are the three eyes. I don't want to put you in an awkward position of trotting out the crystal ball, but as we look at 2020 evolving, we get closer to the November election. What do you think drives the election? Well, I think Trump knows how to use his incumbency. Mm -hmm. So whether it's getting another trade deal or phase two from China, or it's retaliating in a very dramatic way against an Iranian aggression, or any of that thing, he will time it in such a way to maximize the benefit, and he will have no sensitivity to being opportunistic that way. He'll say all presidents do, and I just do it better than everybody else. So, and that, that will help him. And then uh, the fact that he's, been there for four years and he's been successful, I think translates in two different ways. One, he's going to have a lot more money than he did before because people didn't give to him because they didn't think he could win. I think people think he can win now. and the Impeachment came in very handy for yeah, that as well. Yes, yeah. and they want to, they want, I've talked to a lot of donors at, that help Hoover and they all say the same thing. They're going to give to Trump because they think he's going to win. So your typical donor wants to be an ambassador or anything that would have never given a dime to Trump in the front. And they, they were, or even against Hillary. Right. They will bet on a, a likely horse that can win. And then I also think that we, we mentioned this earlier, but the controversial Trump is so baked into who he is now that if he tweets some awful picture of somebody or he says something, it's going to be rationalized as they, they asked for it, he paid them back and I'm not shocked anymore. And there's a, another thing we haven't talked about is that the reaction to Trump is so shrill and so over the top that iconic figures in American culture and politics 
and the sociology have lost their, I mean, Rachel Maddow told us every night that Mueller and then Horowitz, and she has no credibility. I used to love Robert De Niro as an actor. I can't stand to look at him now from what he is. And there was a time when Chuck Schumer was considered as sober and judicious as was some in the Democratic Party. And so what I'm getting at is that he has this unique, much remarked upon ability to bring out the worst in people in this tit for tat, whether it's, you know, Colin Kaepernick or a movie star. And I think what's happened is people are looking at when Bernie, in 2016, Bernie Sanders did not say, I hate Donald Trump, he's a liar, he's a fraud. And he, he said, what, what they said about Trump on that campaign debate stage that I, was not the same stuff they talked about in 2016. And it made them look smaller. And uh, I, I think that helps Trump too. People say, well, you know what, he's just replying to what they're saying about him. And whether they know it or not, they have adopted the Trump atmospherics and it hurts them much more. Trump says to them, I've always, I've actually been in a big time wrestling ring. Now you're getting down here with me and right. that was a mistake because they expected me to do it but they don't expect you. I view it as boxing. You can either jab the man or you can get in close and try to exchange body blows and his critics try to exchange body blows. Yeah. And he's yeah. just, he's built to survive that way. Final question for you, Victor. Um, some advice for the president. Probably the shiny jewel of his four years has been judicial appointments. If you want to talk about what is going to last Trump for, uh, beyond Donald Trump for the next 10, 20, 30 years, it's the men and women he's putting on the federal bench right yeah. now. How would Victor Davis Hanson explain this to the American public as to why this matters? Well, I would say a couple of things. In the specifics, I'd say 96% of federal cases never get to the Supreme Court. They're, they're like the Ninth District Court of Appeal. And... Uh, so these appellate courts and even the district courts are much more important in, in reality than the Supreme Court. That's number one. And number two, if you look at a state like California, you can say, well, we lost all Republican statewide offices, or we don't have, uh, the Democrats have super majorities, or we only have seven congressional. But the real elephant in the room is that ninth district, whether it was Prop 187, or the danger of getting rid of 209, right. or any of these ballot propositions that really affected people's lives. Uh, the gay marriage thing that was twice approved by, the, they're all overturned in a, in a liberal partisan fashion by the Ninth District. And we're getting now, I think, about 45% of those judges are conservative. If he were to be here another four years, uh, I think that the, you could make the statement that 96% of federal uh, court cases would have either a 50-50 conservative-liberal judge deciding them or a ma conservative majority. And so what that would mean for the next uh, Republican president, if he wanted to ban uh, immigrants from a war zone like, uh, you know, Syria coming here, uh, the court would approve that. Or if he wanted to stop the phony refugee status, the court would approve that. And a lot of the stuff that or the wall. Trump's biggest enemy so far, if you actually look at the things he wanted to do and which he couldn't do, it wasn't just Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer, it was the federal court system. Right. And I think that's where it's at. And I don't think that, I think the Democrats have been so hysterical, uh, they don't quite realize that every single day Mitch McConnell is changing the federal judiciary. And it's very ironic because 
it's really at the feet of Harry Reid when he got rid of the filibuster. So right. as long as they hold the Senate, this can go on ad infinitum. Right. That's why 2020 is a two-pronged election between the presidency but also the Senate because it's not just federal. It's not an appellate district. Trump may get one or two Supreme Court picks as yes, well. Yes, he could. And that's – I think that's a – it's – what I'm getting at is – I just I wrote an article not long ago, and I looked at the positions of all the larger candidates six months ago, the 16 Democrats. Mm-hmm. All but two of them supported court packing, that they wanted to get 15 judges. That used to be a discredited FDR blunder. Now they had recalibrated as something that we need to do. Actually, it's funny. The Washington Post put out a candidate's quiz the other day, Victor. Yeah. What kind of Democrat yeah. are you? And so you answer all these questions, one of which was court packing. And I think all but... I think Bloomberg is against court packing. Yeah. It might be wrong, and Biden might be against yeah. it, or it could be Budget wrong. Was for but the rest are just all for Yeah, it. and yeah. then when you start hearing other things, all of them, with exception of Biden, I think, have advocated abolishing the Electoral College. Correct. And then a lot of them, a lot, maybe four or five, I know Harrison Booker said that the constitutional idea that the Senate should be different than the House of Representatives, i.e. that it's okay for Wyoming to have 250,000 people per senator and California have 20 million. That's wrong now. They want to recalibrate the Senate either by enlarging the Senate or turning it into a House type of proportional representation. And so what that tells me is they they feel that not only can they not defeat Trump at the polls, but that he's not a incompetent buffoon, but he's a very sly and he ha- he's very sly, he has a great deal of animal cunning, and he's going to destroy them as a viable political force if he's in the next four years. And that's why they want to change the system, because they can't change the outcome. Right. This is why it'll be fascinating if they do lose to Trump, just how Democrats assess the loss. Is it yeah. Trump? Uh, is uh, it you'd the system? think in a real world it would be, uh, in a real world you think, well, they learned after McGovern that you, uh, after Humphrey they made the mistake and they, they, they they had McGovern, and then they learned with Carter. I, I think it's true, and you can correct me because you know a lot more about politics than I do, but I think since JFK until Obama, that uh, almost half century, they never had a Democrat who won the popular vote that didn't have a Southern accent. Right. And that they abandoned that with Obama, but he was a special case. It wasn't just that he was an African-American, we saw that that doesn't mean anything with Cory Booker, Debell Patrick, but he was a very brilliant politician and he was charismatic and mellifluous and none of them were and he wasn't off-putting. But I think that rule still holds that there has to be some indication that the Democratic president to get the popular vote cannot be seen as nuts. And one of the traditional ways is that he's, even Al Gore had a Southern accent, Bill Clinton, LBJ, uh, Etc. And when they didn't do that, and they nominated a Mike Dukakis or somebody, they lost. Right, but parties don't advance, Victor, unless they recognize correctly what the other side is doing. Right, yeah. that they're not, yeah. and the Democrats There's have yet to do that. Twenty sixteen for them remains some force yeah. beyond their control. Vladimir Putin, some sort of cheating, you know, voting denied, whatever theory they come up with for you know for suppression. I think if Trump. You can already see a little bit of that because they're very worried that after telling us that all of the we have to have an, op- an equality, not of opportunity, but a result. And they didn't get a non-white candidate up there. They're already upset, but they should ask themselves, why did they not get a non-white candidate? And why did minorities say 
vote for Biden over Kamala Harris or Cory Booker. And I think a lot of it is they're, they're a come to Jesus moment where they're saying this identity politics stuff in a multiracial, integrated, assimilated, intermarried society is getting a little bit too much. And if they lose to Trump, you will start to see for the first time in, I don't know, 15 or 20 years, you'll have a <coughs> populist conservative. And if a Julian Castro or a Cory Booker or Kamala Harris had run as a centrist populist, right. they would have done very well. That's a great point. They ran the three most the three heaviest identity politics campaigns, and her <coughs> belly flopped. And some of them had a chance to do it. She had a record as a tough prosecutor. Mm -hmm. She just disowned it. Cory Booker disowned it. And uh, they came across as academic, shrill, whiny victims. And everybody said, you know what? I'm not going to do that. Final, final question, because I know you have to dash. What are you working on right now? Uh, well, I write these three columns a week. I'm writing a book on citizenship, and it's divided into pre-citizenship, and post-citizenship, and the idea, it's called the dying citizen. And I'm trying to argue that when you let people into the country and you treat them as citizens and they're only residents, whether legal or illegal, you've diminished the privileges of citizenship. And, and then when you identify by tribe rather than citizen, your ethnic identity, you've diminished it. And then one chapter is called peasants. When you wipe out the middle class, you've worked in, that's on the pre-citizen. We, you revert back to a tribal, residential, uh, wealthy, poverty, medieval stuff. And on the post side, when you have elites that say we're citizens of the world and that we have more in common as humans on the planet rather than fellow Americans, or we try to change the Constitution at the ways we just talked, or we try to um, not just change the Constitution, but we use the Internet or the media to cancel culture or things. that We're destroying uh, not just the privileges of citizenship, but the idea of liberty and freedom of citizens. And it's diminished into almost a meaningless concept, which I think it is now. And uh, so I hope that works pretty well. And so I had a uh, three-book series with basic books, the World War II and the Trump book, and this is the third and last. Great. Well, I look forward to reading it. Yep, I do too. I hope I can finish it. <laughs> Victor Davis Hanson, thanks for the conversation. Thank you. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word. Convince your friends to have a listen. The Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Victor Davis Hanson and his Hoover colleagues to your inbox weekdays. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. That's at Hoover I-N-S-T. Victor Davis Hanson is on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at VD Hanson. Hanson spelled H-A-N-S-O-N. He also has a website, Victor Davis Hanson Private Papers, and that address on the web is www.victorhanson.com. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.